Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Each week on this podcast, we review TV shows, we review movies, we discuss screen culture, we get into the nitty gritty. Like you think about your couch at home where you do all of your viewing. Think about like the gross biscuits and chip little things that you find when you do that vacuum once every six months of your couch. Think about like all the grainy business there. If you could reconceptualize that as conversation. That's what this podcast is. It's about all the chips that you forget about for six months down the couch. I'm selling this terribly. Folks, this is Screen Watching. This is not like TV only better. Television, teacher, mother. Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Guys. Good to be talking to you again. My name's Dan, joined by Simon. Now, I don't know why I reintroduced myself. It's not that long a theme song. Simon Foster, it's been a big week. You are currently at, which film festival is it? It's like the Screen Culture Wave something something. Nice try. Yeah, no, I'm up here. Hello, everyone. Hello, Screen Watch. It's good to be referred to as the biscuit crumbs of film criticism. We are here at the Screen Wave International Film Festival here in Coffs Harbour. Well, I am. You're not. You're in your in your dungeon down there in uh, in Brisbane. Um, on a very grey and cloudy day, it's been like that most of this week here in Coffs Harbour, but that's been balanced out with some fantastic uh, film viewing from all around the world. Got to see Infinity Pool, got to see an extraordinary film called Safety Last, which I'll be talking about later in the podcast. Um, it's just been a great time. Coffs is a lovely part of the world. For those international listeners, um, if you do come to Australia, just head a few hours north of Sydney or a few hours south of Brisbane and you'll hit Coffs Harbour. Yeah, uh, I've been to Coffs Harbour a bunch of times and, you know, I've enjoyed the 30 minutes I spend there once a year. <laughs> yes, what's the old saying? I once spent a week in Coffs Harbour one weekend. Um, the... Uh... Famous for the big banana, uh, Australia is a land of cultural artefacts um, uh, that recreate in large form the most mundane things in life. And in Coffs Harbour, it's the banana. You can actually visit there and walk inside the big banana. Um, and I think I've met all my requirements for the Coffs Harbour Tourism Board that I was uh, brought up here by. No, I, haven't. I wasn't really. I'm here for the Screenway Festival and having a good time. Epic, epic trivia contest last night. You should have been there, mate. It went off. A four-way tie for a winner. And we had to figure out some way to choose the champion. So um, with that yeah, and look, this... I'm, I'm a few hours north and people are talking about it, Simon. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of hubbub. But folks, let's not dilly-dally too much and talk about the grandeur of the uh, Coffs Harbour region. And instead, let's dive right into a couple of reviews. It stinks. Simon, uh, last week on the podcast, maybe the week before, we had a spirited conversation about the value of reviewing some things over other things and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I really came down to a bit of a crunch this week where there's a TV program that's debuted this week. It's from Amazon Prime Video. It's called Citadel. The company spent a reported $300 million-ish on this program. Okay, yeah. Six episodes of TV. The production was apparently fairly shambolic. Uh, I believe that the six episodes, it was not intended as a six episode series. Instead, it kind of got truncated a little bit. Wow. Uh, six episodes, it stars Richard Madden, future James Bond, and um, that lady whose name I can never remember exactly what it is. Uh, yeah, Priyanka Chopra oh, Jonas, I think something like that. Yeah, I know. I was just going to get like lady. the elements of her name mixed up then. 
Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, she's a great screen presence, but you know, I, I can't say that she's necessarily on my top ten list of you know bankable stars. I get excited by. Sure. But anyway, you've got these two sort of middling stars. You've got this TV series, which by all reports is politely middling itself. And I looked at the dock and I thought, I've got some other big titles in here. And so I chose this week not to watch Citadel, because frankly, I just can't see myself wanting to sit down going through that. And instead, I've decided to put my elements into having a bit of a, I'm calling it a Dan double take. I'm just going to take a look at The Diplomat, which is a series that debuted on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. I didn't get to it a few weeks ago, so I thought this is a chance for me to swing back and we're going to take a look at that program. But in terms of brand new programs, I'm going to take a look at Mrs. Davis, which just debuted during the week on Binge here in Australia, but in the US on Peacock. And then Fatal Attraction, the TV series, uh, I don't want to call it a remake, we'll call it a reconceptualization of the movie that we've all seen many times before. Simon, what have you got on your docket? Is it as exciting as mine? Well, I must say, in a week when you've got more than enough to choose from, you're actually knocking back high-profile shows. I have got two films um, that aren't exactly uh, top of the range, top of the sort of tree for anyone's entertainment dollar this week. Um, We are in that sort of grey period, that in-between period between the, 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 the big award season movies playing out and the American summer films about to launch. So I'm getting to review 80 for Brady, which is apparently in wide release in cinemas around Australia, and the new Apple TV quote-unquote blockbuster Ghosted, starring Anna de Armey and Chris Evans, which brings me to the point, there's a lot of very beautiful people on the podcast this week. We're going to rattle off some stars in our review section. Then we get down to the birthday quiz, and it's full of beautiful people. Um, uh, you know, we're talking about the people like Kerry Russell. We're talking about Lizzie Kaplan. We're talking about Anna de Armey and Chris Evans, the beautiful Jane Fonda. We've just got, and, of course, you and I, um, just stunning individuals. Look, Simon, I see the beauty inside people and not outside, but, you know, you be the shallow you that you need to be. Also, the way that you're talking about the films that offer for you to review, this is Bo is Afraid Erasure, and I won't stand for it. But we'll talk about that later in the podcast as well. Simon, do you want to kick things off with a discussion about Ghosted, the brand new action film on Apple TV Plus? It really is great. You'll see. Any word? She ghosted him. I bet she hasn't even seen your text. She does travel a lot for work. Go to her. I'm going to London. See, you get it. It's a grand romantic gesture. Yeah, that is amazing, mate. 5,000 miles to surprise a girl that you've only met once, especially if she's the one who ghosted you. No, no, she didn't ghost me. She just doesn't have an international calling plan. Oh, right. Apple TV have spent an inordinate amount of money bringing together Anita Arme and Chris Evans so that I may be entertained in the most light-hearted and enjoyable of ways. Ghosted is the new film from director Dexter Fletcher, who's a pretty slick director. He knows how to throw the images together, the sound and image particularly, um, for this uh, romantic action comedy in which uh, these two beautiful people struggle to initially make a new relationship work, um, then to deal with their own uh, aggression towards each other because of how things have played out, and then to finally fall in love all over again. If you think that's any kind of spoiler, you really don't know what you're getting into with Ghosted because this one is a very much by-the-formula take on the sort of romantic action comedies of yesteryear. 
if you were looking for a comparison, you might throw in something like at the very high end, Romancing the Stone, at the very low end, the Romancing the Stone steeple jewel of the Nile, um, ghosted sort of skews slightly towards the better end of things. This really is star power chemistry um, at work here. These two uh really lovely actors i mean there's no way around it they're good looking people and they bring a real charm and chemistry to their role and that goes a long way to pulling off the nearly two hours running time of this film and like i mentioned previously dexter fletcher who took over from brian singer on the bohemian rhapsody film and whatever you think of that movie at least it looked good in parts he brings that to ghosted as well he uses um a lot of films from the apple catalog to bolster the action scenes um and he it's all cut together in a, in a, in a very entertaining um, and very sort of uh, fluffy and disposable way. This is what they pay big movie stars to do, come together in movies like this and pull eyeballs to the small screen. I must admit I was surprised at how much I was enjoying it and I started to think, am I just so um, starved of this kind of romantic action comedy on the big screen now that um, I'm having a good time with this one? Is it really that good? In the end I decided, yeah, they're done exactly what they set out to do. They stuck to the brief and they pulled it off. So um, if you just want a good, fun time, couple of hours, good-looking people doing silly stunts um, with a lot of good music involved as well, then have a look at Ghosted. It's on Apple TV. It's not a film that allows you to dive too deep into as a critic. It is what it is and it achieves that. Um, but watching these two stars do their thing is a big plus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you sounded more positive than most commentary I've heard around this film. To be honest. Uh, oh, look, it's, it's like I say, it's not going to even get too much serious criticism from the, the my critical brethren. It, 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 it totally is a, a star vehicle and, uh, you know, uh, probably looked upon by the Apple organisation as a, a pretty significant factor in their quarterly earnings. It's that kind of film. But when you take it in that light, the fact that it plays out as well as it does and, and with as much sort of energy as it does is, is a bonus. Uh, yeah, so it, viewership for it's apparently been reportedly very high as well, which is interesting. Simon, I'm going to move on and talk about Mrs. Davis. And when I say I'm going to talk about Mrs. Davis, how do you even talk about this program? Is it okay if I proxy? Sorry, she'll speak to me through here, and then I'll just repeat whatever she says. Not she. It. It is a machine. She wants to talk. Talk, 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 talk to you. If I say no, it's just going to send someone else, isn't it? Probably. You are the only person on the planet who can fulfill this quest. You must locate the Holy Grail. Look, uh, from the outset, I've been following this uh, production for on pretty early in, so I heard that there was a TV show coming, co-created by Damon Lindelof, Damon Lindelof, in some sort of nerd circles, people who stuck around with Lost and were a bit disappointed by the end, and then went on to Prometheus and were a bit disappointed by that, suddenly had a black name and people were like, I don't want to watch anything with Damon Lindelof's name as Hatch. But what those people were generally doing is ignoring some amazing TV, like The Leftovers, for example, and then he kind of won people back to a certain degree with Watchmen in the last couple of years on HBO as well. I honestly think sure. Damon Lindelof is one of TV's most interesting, most, uh, not he doesn't necessarily always deliver the goods, but you're always going to go on an interesting journey and be exposed to very interesting ideas and conceptual notions in a Damon Lindelof production. I think anyone who's avoiding a Damon Lindelof production for whatever reason is just doing themselves a disservice as a viewer. So 
me seeing that he co-created a show with someone whose primary experience was working on the Big Bang Theory and then the adventures of young Sheldon when he was a boy, uh, or the adventures of old Sheldon when he's a boy, I guess, uh, Tara Hernandez. And so I didn't really quite understand that sort of um, partnership, but it plays out as a pretty good TV program. Now, you hear the logline for it, which is, Faith and technologies are at odds as a nun confronts an all-knowing, all-powerful artificial intelligence called Mrs. Davis. You hear that it's a nun versus an AI machine, and you kind of think that it's going to be some sort of techno-thriller. Like, there's, there's a version of it which is just as boring as Citadel is reportedly. Okay, like you can kind of like see it being that kind of a program where it's long and ponderous and you have to wait till episode three or four for it to get good. And honestly, I've got no appetite for that kind of thing anymore. But this is a show that isn't slow or ponderous. It is a fast moving, funny, witty, very strange TV program, which is light, bright and airy. And boy, Simon, is it effing strange all the way through this it's thing. It's very strange. So you're Betty Kilpert. <laughs> you got Betty Gilpin playing Sister Simone. She's a woman who refuses to engage in this AI thing called Mrs. Davis. What Mrs. Davis is, it's kind of a very fancy version of like a uh, Google Home device or an Alexa or Siri, one of these personal assistants. But it's more than that. It's using artificial intelligence to answer people's questions about the world and to be able to provide guidance. It is so successful in what it does that effectively everyone on the planet has embraced Mrs. Davis, has incorporated into their day-to-day lives as someone to look for, look to to provide all the answers that will steer them through life. Wars no longer exist. There's no real violence or sadness or anything because people are living their best lives thanks to Mrs. Davis. So you've got that happening. But you've got Sister Simone, the aforementioned Betty Gilpin, wants nothing to do with it. In fact, she claims that Mrs. Davis is responsible for the death of her father. So, you know, personal stakes there. As the first episode unravels, and I'm, I don't even want to reveal much about that first episode. I want to kind of just leave it for people to discover. Uh, what I will sort of point out is that she encounters a guy named Wiley, who's a ex-boyfriend of hers that she's known since uh, she was a child. There's a figure which, and I don't even know how I want to say this sentence because it may be saying more than I want to give away, but there's a man who is her husband and he runs a falafel store. That's probably enough. Uh, There's also a boss in the back room. Okay. And it may be a family business. That's all I'm saying there. You've made it even more confusing than it is to watch, but it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, that first episode unfolds in such a nutty fashion and her introduction in, with the, the car accident scene or the, 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 um, the fake policeman scene is, is just so uh, bizarre and off-kilter and introduces Betty Gilpin in a way that I haven't seen her play before. I've seen her do you know, quite serious stuff or be the, the, the strong sort of moral centre of things like Glow and... Um, and that movie, The Hunt, I think it was called. She was a very stony mm. face and stoic presence in that. But in this, also, one, I believe, written by one Damon Lindelof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so she's obviously got uh, she's in on the the whole Lindelof vibe. And what you said about Lindelof was true. I sort of he fly he flew sort of too high too quickly for a lot of people, bouncing from Lost to Whaley, and he seemed like the hot screenwriter who maybe wasn't earning his place. But you're right, he has bounced back with some really good shows in recent years. 
I mean, I'd consider he always earned his place. I'd say that the end of loss just kind of, I think, got away from them. They had a plan in place and then went on many diversions, which was very interesting and fascinating and built the show into a different place than where they needed to swing it back to at the end. And so I think that's where the uh, real sort of dissatisfaction with that end came from. Mm. But uh, this is a show that, as we've mentioned, has Betty Gilpin in it. Jake McDormand, who I kind of half know by face, playing this character Wiley. But there's all these amazing, great supporting cast members that crop up through the first, uh, well, I-, I think it's just the one season show. I haven't reached the finale of it yet. I don't think that's, uh, it's going out weekly. So I think there's a few weeks before mm. we see that. I think it's one and done. So I'm not really quite sure. Uh, but you've got cast members, including people like David Arquette, uh, Elizabeth Marvel, who, if you don't know Elizabeth Marvel by name, you've certainly seen her on screen many times before. She's a very uh, notable figure. Margot Martindale's in it, Ben Chaplin, Ashley Romans, who people might remember from Why the Last Man, uh, Katja Herbers from My Beloved Evil. Sorry, I should have said My Beloved Katja Herbers. Uh, It's basically a rollicking good time of this program. It's strange. It's weird. It's a bit hard to just recommend to everybody because it is just so strange and just uh, tonally... I want to say all over the place because it's very focused, but it's not really what anyone expects from the outset. Uh, the first, I think, four episodes got released on the one day, which I thought was a bit of a unique uh, approach to it, considering there's only eight episodes all up. Like, why not just go for all eight episodes? Uh, this yeah. is a show which I think could be very easily binged over a weekend, and I just can't even really say that much about it. I can try to talk about the tone of this program, but to go into the plot just kind of reveals some of the great, Uh, Because if you think about the idea of Lost and the idea that there were various mystery boxes sort of scattered through it, the same thing kind of exists in this TV program. I don't think there is on the nose as you found in Lost, but certainly every episode really is about a sense of discovery and taking yourself deeper into this world and deeper into that relationship with Sister Simone and this artificial intelligence uh, oh, sorry. Totally agree. Sorry. The, the last detail I think I probably need to share is that Mrs. Davis ends up recruiting Sister Simone through this first episode to go hunting after the Holy Grail. Yeah, that's right. That's the sort of show this is. You can't <laughs> describe it. It's critic proof because critics can't talk about it without ruining the whole thing. Olaf has great performances, very fun tone. You've never seen a nun that kicks as much ass as this, except for the many other TV shows on the air right now with nuns kicking ass. It's magnificent. It really is. It's a good fun. Having watched the first episode, I'm, I'm totally on board and looking really looking forward to the rest of them. Um, it is on where? Where are we watching this? In Australia on Binge, in the US on Peacock. Beautiful. Shall we jump straight into 80 for Brady? Oh, please do. And if you feel that you don't want to go deep into this one, I understand. Game's about to start. There's Tom. Oh, oh what a beautiful man. I like Gronkowski. We know, Chris. We've all read your Gronk erotica. It's not erotica. It's fan fiction. Very sexy fan fiction. Aren't you tired of the same old boring lives? Let's go to the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is no place for four old women. This could be Tom's last one. He's almost 40. That's like 80 in people years. Yeah, we're 80 in people years. I just really need this trip. Based on a true story, 80 for Brady is the story of four women, uh, four elderly women, mature age women, as we say nowadays, who have uh, a deep infatuation with star quarterback for the Patriots, Tom Brady, and who, 
um, in a, a, a moment of thrilling exultation on their part, they decide to up from their armchairs and head for the Super Bowl when the New England Patriots make uh, that uh, storied sporting event. Uh, the four ladies in the cast are probably the key reason to watch 80 for Brady. And I'll come back to why you probably should watch it. Um, Jane Fonda, who looks more beautiful than ever. She's just so lovely and funny in this film. Sally Field, Rita Marino, and of course, Lily Tomlin. Um, they uh, play these women as lifelong friends who've had uh, a whole series of ups and downs in their life. The, the the most sort of significant and recent one being Lily Tomlin surviving um, cancer and the treatment for cancer. And she, during that time, it was when they found their infatuation for the quarterback and it sort of bonds them in the sort of later stages of their life. Um, I should point out that Sally Field isn't quite 80 and it is a running gag through the films that she's not 80 like the rest of them. Um, and, and, and she plays it very funny. So what happens is these four uh, elderly women, they get in a car and start heading for um, the Super Bowl uh, and along the way get into a whole lot of kooky adventures. Um, the film is very slight on plot. Once it's set up that these four women are going to the Super Bowl, it kind of just follows them on a series of wacky moments on the road trip across the US, um, most of it taking place at a sports convention um, where they get to you know, play passing competitions and uh, do quarterback drills and get into a dance contest and all those sort of funny things that you know, look great on screen when old people do them. Um, this does sort of get very close to that awful kind of film that I really dislike, the movies for old people written by young people where they make old people do sort of kooky kid things and think it's funny that they're acting silly. Um, this one has moments like that, but it also has moments that these actresses pull off where there's a bit of a deeper meaning um, and, and probably has a lot for the audience that this film is, is keen to attract, which is certainly the mature age audience. Having said that, well, I guess I'm 55. I guess I am the mature age audience. I had a good time watching this. Um, once again, in much the same way that Ghosted is for a certain type of movie experience, movie watching experience, so is 80 for Brady. Uh, the way it plays out and the, the chemistry that these four actors have on screen is, is, is pleasing, to say the least. And uh, while neither of my films this week are going to hold up to too much sort of critical opinion or, or long-term um, um, respect. Uh, they're a good watch for 90-odd minutes or so, or 120 minutes in the case of the other one. 80 for Brady is in wide release. Um, and if it's a nice, if you need to take your mum or dad out to the movies this week, then this is the one to do it for. So I guess my ultimate question is, uh, when I'm thinking about where I want to spend my Jane Fonda dollar, do I go and see 80 for Brady or do I hold over a few weeks for Book Club, the next chapter? Yeah, it's a, we're in the middle of a Fonda renaissance, a Fondaissance at the moment with her in a lot of screens around the country. Or you can settle in for a new season of Grace and Frankie, which can't be too far off with Lily Tomlin as well. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's great to see her on the big screen. And I, we, I don't like sort of focusing in on some work she may have had done because um, that's just a part of a Hollywood existence and, and sort of um, what many ageing actresses have to do to keep getting the parts. But 
she's been very careful about how it's done um, and she looks stunning on screen. Um, the years as a as a aerobic instructor, you know, the world's leading aerobic instructor has, has certainly paid off. Having said that, so do all the other ladies. They're incredible on screen together. Um, and it's, it's a joy to see, you know, these mature age actresses, mature age actresses uh, doing what they do best. The other point I should quickly make about 80 for Brady is that um, it's produced by Tom Brady. So at times it feels a little bit like a, uh, a nod to himself. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's any sort of surprise that Tom Brady's a man with a bit of an ego, but I guess you have to be to be the biggest quarterback in the world. But it also um, was made fairly cheaply and sort of topped out around the $45 million mark at the US box office. So there was a lot of talk about this film being at the forefront of bringing the older viewer back to the cinema um, in the wake of, of COVID, because that's been sort of maybe the hardest demographic to get back out of the house and along to sit along to the cinema. So um, there's there's been a lot of chat about that and, and, and good on it for achieving those goals. Yeah, uh, just a couple of things. One, Jane Fonda has been very open talking about the mistake she made getting plastic surgery. So she, that's probably yeah, something. She didn't like it. We listen, on yeah. the drive up here, actually, we listened to the uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus podcast that had Jane Fonda on it, and it was a really open mm-hmm. and sort of um, quite a lovely discussion these two women had about ageing. Uh, what's what's it called? Why, wiser Than Me or I'm, what, You're Wiser Than Me or something like that? I th- yeah, podcast. I think Wiser Than Me. Yeah, yeah look, I also listened um, to that the other last week. Yeah, and she wasn't I, I happy found, with it. And, yeah. yeah with oh, sorry, the, I was going to say, I find that podcast to be a little bit overly precious. A bit precious. <laughs> a, a bit precious. Like I get what Jill and Louis Dreyfus and team are going for with it, but there's just something about it which just really rankles me. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Fee said the same thing, actually. Yeah. My wife. Um, so check out 80 for Brady in cinemas now. It'll probably be on streaming within the month, but it's worth checking out anyway. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely film. Yeah. Sorry. The other thing I was going to say is I'm sorry to break this to you, but Grace and Frankie actually finished a year ago. In fact. The whole, uh, what, the whole thing? In fact, Simon, we are right now as we record on the 29th of April, marking the anniversary of the final release date for the end of Grace and Frankie. Wow. How about that? I thought it was still an ongoing concern. Never seen an episode, but I'd love to because I've heard it's very good. Well, maybe you should watch it before you start, you know, declaring the sadness that it's gone. Anyway, Simon, look, I'm just going to move on. I want to, it's fine. Uh, look, I want to talk about Fatal Attraction, the brand new TV series that has brought the 1987 film into the modern day. And boy, are the results something. Daniel Michael Gallagher, convicted of murder in the second degree. We understand you do have a statement you've prepared. Every day that I have been in here, I have thought about Alexandra Forrest because I need to understand what I did, how she died, and why. You know, if you're a different guy, I would tell you to be careful right now. What was it about her? I don't know. Fatal Attraction, huge blockbuster in the late uh, late 80s, came out in 1987. It ran for months and months and months, became a big cultural conversation. It's become part of the cultural conversation in the years since. Uh, We still talk about like bunny boilers. We're talking about a film that was about a hapless everyday man played by Michael Douglas, who has the misfortune of the one time he has an affair with somebody and it is a hot steamy weekend. 
it turns out this woman is to quote uh wayne Al- uh wayne campbell a psycho hose beast she goes crazy she kills the family bunny um it ends with the wife protecting the family unit by killing off the uh, glenn close character the audience is applaud you know michael douglas is back in his trusted relationship again and there's no problems after that ever yeah the wife very understanding Yes, the wife okay, is so, very understanding. And the ending was completely reshot when audiences said, hey, well, Simon, hey, this, hey, is where, hey. this is where I'm heading. Okay so, okay, so the production of Fatal Attraction changed quite a fair bit during the conception of it. And it ended up reaching a point where it had gone through a number of focus groups and uh, executive uh, briefing notes to the point where they reshot this ending to give it this uh, cathartic moment where they bring this family unit back together. But if you get on YouTube, you can see the original end of this movie. However, you know, the finished film is the finished film, and this is what people have known it from culturally, you know, since 1987. So when it comes to the modern time where they've got all this intellectual property sitting around and somebody's taking a meeting and they're like, hey, look, here's a few things you might want to look at. And somebody's like, well, fatal attraction. That seems interesting. I've got a take on that. Okay, this is kind of where we find ourselves. So we find ourselves in 2023, the need to create a fatal attraction TV series which takes what is a, you know, two hour story and blows it out into many, many episodes. But also it takes a story that has that problematic aspect to it, which doesn't really fly in the cultural current discourse. So what they've done is they've reconceived the program a little bit where we're actually now in the modern day, but the story takes place in two uh, time periods. It takes place today where Joshua Jackson, a uh, stand-in for the Michael Douglas character, and boy, when I think Michael Douglas, Joshua Jackson is obviously the person I'd get to cast that role. Sure. you got Joshua Jackson with some very grey, sort of big hair. Uh, he's coming out of prison where he's been for the last 15 years because he's been in prison for the murder of what was the Glenn Close character back in the day. That character played oh. by Lizzie Kaplan. Okay. Interesting. We also see in the other timeline, the timeline where that relationship develops and uh, devolves. So that's going on. And you think about the premise of this thing where you're looking at him having come out of prison for that murder, but plot twist, and I'm just going to ruin the end of the episode. He suggests that maybe he wasn't actually responsible for murdering her and that he was framed. What? So what? Yeah. So... <laughs> So they've laid in like this sort of mystery around this. And you think about the, what they need to achieve in the show, which is for it to be a 2023 version of this story from the 80s that is just culturally a little bit gross these days. And was a little bit gross back then, but audiences were more than happy to applaud it and go along with it because that was the yeah, general the, mood the of the whole dis- The whole discussion back then was it yeah. came out of the, the AIDS sort of fear and that having unprotected random sex with strangers is... Yeah. It's going to lead to something horrible and dangerous. So th- there was a whole age yeah. element to it. Culturally, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is that context that needs to be sort of played in, placed in there. But if you think about it from a 2023 context where they need to do these things, what you can do by having the flashbacks and the murder aspect of it all is that you can discuss some of the cultural changes between then and now, what was permissible, what isn't. And you can look at both time periods through different lenses. Like there's a really good, and obviously it's 15 years ago. It doesn't mean that the flashbacks to like when the uh, relationship took place was 1987. 15 years ago is obviously the mid 2000s, if not late 2000s at this point, reminding us all how horribly old we've all become. (laughs) 
Sorry, that's 15 years ago, which, I mean, you know, it's not even double that, which 1987. Like, you have to go further back than that again. Stop reminding me that I saw it twice at the movies, okay? Would you please stop bringing up how old the movie is? (laughs) Oh, gosh. You know what, Simon? I was seven years old when Fatal Attraction came out. (laughs) And I'm in my middle age now. Hmm. I think I I saw it with my first wife. (laughs) (laughs) There's been seven wives, everyone. Okay, so, <laughs> so like, you've got this framework where you can actually really explore what's going on. And I reached the end of that first episode going, you know what? I haven't exactly been entertained by the hour I've just watched, but I'm going to barrel ahead and take a look at the next one because this looks like where the woman, now played by Lizzie Kaplan, is going to meet up with him and, like, well, they've already kind of met. But uh, this is, like, where the relationship really starts happening. And... As we all know from that movie, this is where things are going to get hot and heavy. And at this point, Simon, I'm just going to say, what the fuck are you doing with a Fatal Attraction TV program, which pretty much removes all the sex out of the program? It's not a sexy drama by any means. And all you've got is a really hollow, morally compromised drama that you're running through, which isn't an interesting morally compromised drama. It is a chore. It is a dull, dull, dull TV program. And I have no idea why this program exists. Wow, because if there's anything you could not call the original property of, from which this is taken is, is dull um, or a chore to watch. It was a cracking bit of big screen action, or not action, but um, uh, entertainment. And if it's been reduced, well, if they're using the I'm, name I'm, Fatal Attraction, drag yeah. it down to this level that you say this is, this is a, a major misfire. The movie is propulsive, okay? It like scene after yeah. scene, it really just barrels forward. This has the potential to barrel forward, but instead, it's too busy caught up with being ashamed of that original film, too busy being ashamed of sex broadly. Like, this should be a sexy, sexy TV drama, okay? And it should actually be bringing sex back to the screen. We don't really have this in TV so much, and this is a way to really do it. For years, people, I've definitely been guilty of it, have talked about the fact that it's hard to do horror as a TV program. Uh, actually, sorry, let, let, let me just circle around a little bit. So, Ghosted, there's a conversation happening kind of right now following an interview with Dexter Fletcher, the director of the film, okay, where he's talking about how he made a number of compromises through the film because the intent for it was to be released to a streaming audience and not a cinema audience. People watching right. at home have a different visual expectation of what's happening on screen versus if you go to the cinema for it. So his original conceptualization, the film was going to open with a very long panning shot that lasted a couple of minutes. Apple's executive said, hey, look, that's actually not going to work so well for you on the screen. We've got some data here that shows that you do a sequence like that, particularly front up at the beginning of a film, and you're going to find that you get a lot of drop off from viewers straight off. So if you want your viewers to stick around, we're not saying don't do it, but if you want your viewers to stick around, you can't do a scene like that. He said, totally get it. I'll do something else. And so reconceptualize that. So you have to think streaming, uh, something that happens on a small screen at home where you've got the ability to turn something off or pick up your phone and play Wordle, uh, which is what I did through episode two of Fatal Attraction as I started getting bored, bored, bored by it all. <laughs> doesn't necessarily work. Horror yeah. is a genre where people have looked at it saying doesn't work on the TV because horror often works with like very strong tension building moments, okay, to get to like really sort of get underneath people's fingernails. But I would say in the last couple of years, quite a number of visionary TV directors have actually found a way to bring some very scary content to the small screen. 
both in serialized dramas as well as movies made and look at the Shutter platform. Like you're seeing a lot of stuff produced for Shutter or at least acquired early in by Shutter. And like well, that Flan- goes I mean, gangbusters the and audience yeah, are the- willing to go with it. Yeah, the Flanagan yeah. series. So you can find a way to do it. Yeah. But like you look at the modern era where, you know, sex has been pretty much removed from TV because it hasn't really worked. Traditionally, TV has been broadcast. And so it's hard to do sex in broadcast TV because you've got a lot of um, mainstream audiences that probably aren't necessarily after anything too explicit. Uh, Certainly, there's the fear of showing too much there. Um, Cable certainly allowed people to play around in that space. You saw a few mature programs like... um, Tell Me You Love Me, I think is the name of the program. That was an HBO drama that played around with relationships. Yeah, and sex and the sort of change thing up as well, yeah. as well. Yeah. And like these aren't necessarily shows that are like overly preoccupied with sex. And admittedly, Tell Me You Love Me was, but uh, these are shows which, you know, maybe not necessarily erotic TV programs, but certainly were talking about sex in a fairly honest way. And that's the way mm. that they approached it. But you haven't really seen too many TV programs, and there's certainly examples, but you haven't seen too many that play around with the idea that I'm going to create a TV program that turns on the audience. Okay. But we still haven't because fatal attraction has not got that as a prerequisite <laughs> where Adrian Lyon making that original movie, that was absolutely a consideration. Yeah, absolutely was. Gee, that's such a disappointment to hear because fa- the, the, the words fatal attraction, um, as you said at the top of the of your review, it, it carries such weight with a generation of movie watchers and really represents um, a fairly adult perspective and a fairly complex perspective on on promiscuity and um, infidelity and, and all those sort of things to to have it turn into a what it sounds like a fairly toothless bit of bit of television is is such a disappointment. Yeah, look, I'd rather watch Citadel than sit through the rest of the season of TV. Oh my god, I wasn't expecting you to go this way because there was a lot of buzz about this going in just on the name, I guess. So, and and Lizzie Kaplan's casting, I'm no absolutely Jackson fan, but but to have her on board is a big deal. But wow, what a what a disappointment that that sounds like. So maybe I'll give that one a miss. Fatal Attraction. How do we yeah. watch this? Where is it? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't, but also it's currently streaming on Paramount Plus. And keep in mind, there are. Bus ads and billboards everywhere for this thing. They're putting a lot of marketing resource muscle behind this one. Okay. All right. You've got one more to get through the new Kerry Russell drama, The Diplomat. Ambassador Catherine Weiler, Prime Minister Nicole Trowbridge. Welcome. Sir, it's an honour to meet you. Ah, Honour to be met. (laughs) Someone is luring a strike force into the Persian Gulf. The President is sending you to stop a war before it starts. Yeah, so look, I'm going to be super quick on this one because I talk too much about uh, Fatal Attraction for my taste. Uh, Basically, The Diplomat is a series that had zero buzz whatsoever when it debuted. Uh, It was barely a blip on people's radar. It's the premise of it is a uh, it's kind of a bit interesting in that it's set in London, which I hadn't really quite expected. But it's a U.S. diplomat. She's ready to go to. Could you try again? Uh, Siri, just try a bit harder. You'll understand. <laughs> we'll get there the eventually, AI, buddy. Davis is coming for you. It's the AI. <laughs> no, no, no. Mrs. Davis is a very smart AI. This is certainly artificial, but that's as far as I can really sort of give it credit, Simon. <laughs> but anyway, you've got this diplomat. She's supposed to be going off to the Middle East where she's going to do some actual real work. Uh, she's got her husband, who's a man who's got a very storied history as a diplomat working in the past. Uh, unfortunately, he's a very, he's a much larger than life sort of a character. 
And as a result, he's been more or less ostracized by quite a number of people working within the machinery of governments. And certainly there is a reference at some point made to the fact that he's never going to be sent on an overseas trip again. Uh, but he's now the husband of Kerry Russell's character, who is a diplomat who has just like accepts this post in the Middle East. And on the day she's about to fly out, she gets summoned to the White House where they need her to go to London to take over as the diplomat there and become Australian, uh, become the US's ambassador to uh, the UK uh, following a terrorist incident that's taken place and killed, I think, about 30 different uh, naval, uh, naval officers. Wow. So this is a series that certainly has... Um, international intrigue because uh what took place on that boat killing all the naval officers is very much a thread that runs through this but you've also got this really interesting relationship between uh kerry russell's character and her husband which is played by rufus sewell now i don't really know rufus sewell that well beyond seeing him in dark city back in like 1998 uh, i'm sure i've seen him in things since but He's incredibly charming and charismatic in this, and it made me think, Guy, where have you been for all of my viewing life? Like, <laughs> I, I want to see more of you. You're great. Uh, and Kerry Russell, I think, is really quite always, fantastic as well. He's always been on this cusp of being kind of a star or like an always reliable bit of casting, but but never quite breaking out into that A-list sort of leading man type of thing. I've often been, a, oh, and because of Duck City, I've, I've always followed what Rufus Sewell does. Having said that, I can't tell you anything else he was in, but good actor. <laughs> Yeah, like I'm just at the moment just rushing around trying to find like the Rufus or IMDb or Wiki to see what he's been doing. Uh, we've probably seen him in great things like apparently he was in the John Adams miniseries. Uh, he was yeah. Marvel's Mrs. Maisel. I don't remember him being in it, but I'm sure he was. <laughs> That's your show. Uh, he was man, How in can man you not High remember Castle. that show? <laughs> see, well, I've, I've, I've seen I him. I don't in, know he was in it for I've much. Seen, I've seen him in the Shyamalan film Old recently. Um, he, I've, I've oh, yeah, remembered yeah. him. For, yeah, so he, he he works constantly, just never quite in that, that leading man capacity. Yeah. I'm just looking through. I've watched a bunch of things he's been in, and he just hasn't registered really in the slightest. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, Simon, getting back to it all. Uh, basically, the overall tone of this thing, uh, I heard lots of people refer to it as a bit like the West Wing, and I totally get that because creator Deborah Khan was a West Wing writer in the later seasons of the program. Uh, so she was there from seasons four through seven, apparently. So certainly enough to get a little bit of the Aaron Sorkin era of the West Wing, but certainly a major figure and really became quite prominent on that program as a writer through those final Sorkin-less seasons. Uh, and when you watch this, there's certainly, there's, there's a spirit of levity that you get from those early Aaron Sorkin episodes of the West Wing that are certainly infused through this, but it is also a lot more sort of harder edged in terms of its approach to a lot of the international sort of dealings. So there's definitely a lot of light and shade taking place in this one. It's not a dry program by any means. Like it's, we used the word earlier, it's propulsive. Like it really takes you through, you know, scene by scene. And there's lots of big, fun, interesting characters sort of throughout it. It's really entertaining. It's exactly the sort of show I'd like to see more of on streaming where it's not slow and ponderous. It basically kind of feels like a network TV program, but one which gives the actors the capacity to say a few swear words and it just moves briskly in just that way that we kind of enjoy TV being, or at least did back in the day. This delivers on the promise of what we thought streaming would be instead of what streaming became, which is a whole bunch of people who are embarrassed to do regular TV and instead thought, oh, well, I can tell my two-hour story across eight hours and explore every character in their minutia. 
that actually doesn't make for good TV. Serialized TV needs to be more like The Diplomat and less like, we'll call it Citadel. Two key, two key casting um, elements in this. You and I have spoken uh, at length about our adoration for Kerry Russell, so great to see her back in a serious kind of show like this. But also I would point to an actor called Rory Kinnear who plays the Prime Minister in the yep. show. Um, he recently starred opposite the wonderful actress Jessie, uh, what's her name, whose name I can't remember, from um, a whole bunch of stuff, uh, in the movie Men the latest Alex Garland film, and Rory Kinnear gives this multi-character performance where he's in all sorts of different guises, which is extraordinary. I'm now watching anything with Rory Kinnear in it. So The Diplomat has just gone right to my top of... In a week when there's not that many big screen movies to see, I'm going to make sure I check out The Diplomat. Uh, have you yet seen Bank of Dave? No, I haven't seen that at all, but I understand that's getting a lot of buzz out of the the MIP market over in Khan as well. I read, I read that. That's where, that's what I thought this was. I thought he was in this, but he's, he's everywhere at the moment, which is great because he's very good. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Diplomat, I'm loving it. It's incredibly entertaining. And I got through about three episodes last night when I started pressing play and I'll probably finish it out before the day's done. And it that's is awesome. where, how do we watch this? What, 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 which of the networks is it on? Uh, I'm not sure if you heard of this one. Uh, Net Netflix, Netflix, Netflix is the streaming service. I'll check it out on Wikipedia. All right, it's called The Diplomat. Well worth a look. Which God, if ever we need an intermission, it's right now. Play the sting. <laughs> the it was the concept of the intermission all right hit me Mrs. with it because i'm still okay. not quite sure what we're talking about but I'm, I'm kind of interested because it reads well here's my blurb and it does read well like this reads fantastic and let me take you on a bit of a journey with yeah. it okay here's my concept for our middle bit here our intermission mrs davis is about a mm -hmm. nun fighting an evil ai Stories help us address yes. our hopes and fears about how we engage with the world and where, we're, where we are heading as a people. Naturally, our stories wow. since the dawn of screen culture have focused on our relationships with technology. And so I thought, yes. what are the films and TV shows that we felt have had something of value to say? And how has that message held up over the years? Now, That's I put that out there and I thought this is kind of interesting. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like films are fairly respect, uh, reflective of the times we live in and our concerns and our fears and whatnot. And yes. when a film's released, like, you know, that may resonate with us. But as time goes on, Fatal Attraction being a good one. We talked about the rise of AIDS and sort of concern about having, you know, um, sex with strangers and how that could effectively have repercussions. That makes sense in 1987, maybe less so 10 years later and certainly less so 2023. So yeah. what are those stories? And so I put this down here with some very firm ideas of things I wanted to discuss. And last night you texted me saying, I don't know what you're talking about with this middle bit. And <laughs> I, I was going to respond back, but it was a bit late at night and I actually fell asleep on the couch. Okay. I was going to respond back and say, I had some really good ideas for this, but I actually forgot to like follow oh, through and it. jot them down. Because when I was thinking about it last night, I actually couldn't remember at all what I wanted to talk about. Right. And Jesus then I've had a busy morning. So, Simon, I actually don't really know what we're talking about at all here, except there was one thing I had in mind when I came up with this thing that I thought I could talk about, and maybe that may stir us to be able to fake our way through the segment. 
All right, okay. And I've got a few here. Like I interpreted what you wrote there. So okay. I've got a few that maybe yeah. from my interpretation of that that intermission definition. Whew, wow. Um, so let, let's hear what your one is. What's, what's, where, where are we coming at from? Okay, so this one here, and this is what I thought about, and it came very much off the back of Mrs. Davis and the concerns of that. But I was thinking about mm. the 1984 uh, MTV movie Electric Dreams. Now, Electric <gasps> Dreams, the... Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, the primary concern of Electric Dreams is that, and it was, it's an easy jump to because we're coming straight off the back of Mrs. Davis. But yeah. the thing, the thing with Electric Dreams, it was very much about a guy. If you haven't seen the movie, you can find it on YouTube very easily. And you should. It's fantastically entertaining. It really but is. But it concerns a guy named Miles, who's a guy who's just like an everyday man. He's an architect. And so he ends up going to the shops to buy a replacement, um, what do you call it? Personal organizer. If you remember those from back in the day, effectively a fancy calculator that also stores like calculator, uh, sorry, calendar dates for you. Uh, he goes to buy one of those, but he gets talked into buying a computer and the computer ends up gaining some sentient life and starts taking over his life. But the concern of that movie is very much about where we place those boundaries between our personal lives and letting technology play a role in it. A personal yes. organizer might be like what we're really after from a device, but do we necessarily need something that will turn on the coffee for us and will uh, essentially fall in love with our new next door neighbor who's a cute girl that plays the cello? Uh, and the answer to that is probably not. So where does that line rest? And if you can punctuate that with an amazing song by Phil Oakley, then, you know, let's load it on in there. Put in some Giorgio Moroder okay. as well, and you got yourself a classic that I'll be bopping along to every time it plays in the car. So, no, it does that hold up in the modern day? Classic, absolutely, yeah. that holds up. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Does, it was number yeah. four on my list of films. I can't believe you said it. I'm so excited that we're on the same on the same path with this. You know, you don't need to create a list of five every time we do this, Simon. <laughs> I'm just saying. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I didn't know. No, they were sort of fallback options. So we'll see. Cool. Well, throw me, throw me another film. What have you got there? All right. So, well, in terms of technology and in terms of me being a tragic sci-fi nerd, I can go all the way back to how Fritz Lang interpreted the future in Metropolis and how we're all going to worship this false idol of technology and, and that this German expressionistic film, which is now nearly 100 years old, really did tap into what we're going to be we can look at it today in terms of how computers and technology have, have largely taken over every aspect of our life. And we can see that this film was giving us some kind of warning, some kind of um, insight as to how dangerous and, and, and how um, um, sort of complicated that can be in building a society. So that's where I sort of came at from what you were saying. And Metropolis is, is still a classic of its time. When we get to the, let's jump forward 80 odd years, 50 odd years when, it, when they came out. And two films came out in the 80s that, um, uh, in much the same way that Fatal Attraction set the tone for sexual politics, um, the day after the 1983 Armageddon film, the, the um, nuclear war film, made us look at the realities of what we were all thinking may happen in the case of a nuclear war and reconsider it and, and, and um, go through a whole series of, social changes that built up this um, sort of uh, fight against nuclear um, proliferation and, and nuclear technology for defence that um, that I think caught everyone by surprise. The film itself is, is a little bit cheesy in an 80 kind of way, but its depiction of 
even in, even in that TV movie sense of what happens in the wake of a nuclear war, got everyone talking um, and still packs a, a, an incredible punch to today. There was a, a documentary a couple of years ago, um, whose name I can't remember, which looked at the impact of the film and how it went all the way to the UN and, and got people talking about um, scaling back our nuclear armament. So that's important. In a much lighter tone, I'd also throw in there the Matthew Broderick film War Games, which spoke to how technology is taking it over the modem scene where they put picks up the phone and puts it on the, the little modem uh, uh, sort of device um, that as they were back in the 80s. Uh, also a film which looked at how if we let technology run its course, um, it will continue to run it. And uh, although it was a studio action adventure film, it... Um, it carried a bit of a punch, a bit of intelligence back in the day. So I, maybe I'm on the right path with what you were saying with those sort of films. Yeah, look, um, so two others that have come to mind, I mean, obviously I've been thinking about this for a long while. <clears throat> two other films that come to mind, I'm going to stick very much in like the 1980s sort of milieu that sort of um, kicked things off with the, uh, the Fatal Attraction chat. But a good one is the 1987 film, The Secret of My Success, starring one Michael J. Fox. That movie was about a young farm kid who had dreams of going to New York City, taking his uh, regional university uh, education and try to apply it to get a job working for a company on Wall Street and make his way up the chain. Uh, largely, that film's very much concerned with the idea of uh, faking it till you make it. It's about success at all cost, and it is very 1987. You do find like a voice of dissent in the film with... Uh, Gosh, what's his name? Uh, the gentleman that played Cousin Ira in Mad About You and is in Monkey Shines, opposite Jason Beige. Uh, David Pankow. John, John Pankow. John Pankow's his name. John Pankow, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so John Pankow, who plays the head of the... Ma oh, he does play the head of the mailroom. He's a guy in the mailroom. He's very much talking about the suits in the building and you don't want to be like the suits. And it's very much a bit of a class separation. But he's there, uh, Michael J. Fox, he wants to be one of the suits. He's desperate to be there. And he fakes it by taking over a corner office, which he finds vacant, and just pretends to be this uh, executive named uh, Brantley Whitford, I think is the name. It's been a little while since I've seen it, but I've seen it a lot. Uh, and I saw so it the twice movie at is... the movies, Dan, with my second really? wife. Really? <laughs> 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 okay, I want to unpack some stuff here, but I'm going to move on. Uh, good grief. Uh, yeah, so it's about faking it to make it, and it's about success in uh, big finance America at all costs. Does that movie hold up today? And I was thinking it kind of does, but there's a bit of a twist on it. So I think about a movie that you and I saw recently and absolutely loved and is a crowd-pleasing favorite right now that lots of people are very positive around, the movie Air which is very much similar in that it's just about some people trying to become incredibly wealthy through the creation of um, corporate maneuvering to a certain degree. But I guess maybe where the difference is there and where you find that the storytelling has changed somewhat is that while the secret of my success is preoccupied with the achieving achievement of power and getting to that through largely through sex, uh, the more modern day take has a very strong altruistic sort of desire for these corporate executives to want to support something through dreams and human excellence. And so there's a lot more of a um, altruistic idea to making all of this money. 
And so does Secret Mice, is that sold up anymore? Kind of, but also not really. Uh, uh, mm. Ambitions for what we want out of life are just a little bit sort of um, skewed. And I'm just going to give one other one, Simon. I don't know if you've got more on your list, but very quickly, yeah. Ghostbusters. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff in it, which is feels very much the 1984 sort of um, era that it came from. Uh, but the one thing that really runs through, well, there's two aspects, but the one thing is the film isn't about ghostbusting at all. It's very much what a lot of films in that early 80s period were about, which is about decrying the man. Okay. It's about, you know, some wise ass people, mostly comedies sort of focus on this. And you can see where that shift happens between 84 sure. of Ghostbusters and just three years later with Secret of My Success and where that power imbalance is. Because Michael J. Fox, he wants to be the man. But back in 1984, you didn't want to be the man. And so it was basically just these guys who are just doing whatever they can to become small business owners and just stick it to the man any opportunity they can. But this leads towards that issue in that film where the villain of it is a representative of the government from the EPA who everything that that guy Richard says is completely on the money. No, the Ghostbusters shouldn't be running a nuclear device like underneath a building in New York City. That shouldn't be happening. There should be tests. There should be regulations on what they're doing. Just like three guys who are like, oh, we know what we're doing. That's not enough. There should be greater oversight as to what the Ghostbusters are up to. And as much as I love that movie, boy, that aspect of it does not hold up. Yeah, there was an interesting... I, I literally remember reading a review of the Ghostbusters back in the day where it takes a pretty ballsy studio film to make your villain a representative of the Environmental Protection Agency. That's kind of a big deal. That was so good. Do you have anything else left on the out. list or...? The only thing I had written down, and it's another, I come at this from another sort of technological aspect because it was based on Mrs. Davis. I was looking more at technology thing. Yeah. And the film was a flop when it was released, was the Johnny Depp film Transcendence. It's kind of a silly film and not a lot of people saw it in the end. But the notion of sending the the, the subconscious or the conscious of the deceased into the cloud and then trying to control it from there, maybe we'll be looking at transcendence 100 years from now when when that sort of technology has been achieved and maybe we'll be looking at it in the same way as we look at metropolis that's probably not going to happen but <laughs> but it's 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 worth considering that it, it may become a very prescient and um uh sort of film of its time we look back off and go hey you know johnny depp warned us all those years ago we should have been careful anyway that was a good intermission that kind of worked out pretty well Imagine not listening to Johnny Depp. Okay, I play a little sting. <laughs> Simon, this day in history, hit me. What do we got? No, I do want to mention very quickly what else have I been watching. I just want—I do want to mention in this. In okay, this we'll do it. During the week, I had one of the fine. Okay, yeah, I just want to mention safety last quickly. You know, we'll okay, cut this out. And Let, jump straight. Simon, let's in. let's start the segment again. Yep. Okay, Simon, quickly, let's do what else have you been watching? Very quickly, what's been going on? I do just want to mention very quickly that during the week here at Swift, we saw I saw a 100-year-old comedy called Safety Last. Many of you obviously don't know the film, but it is the film where Harold Lloyd, the great physical comedian, hangs off the clock above a New York City street. Uh, a lot of people, anyone who's, who knows cinema knows that image. The film was played in a restored version with a three-piece live musical orchestra, like a jazz sort of quartet, playing the, the the silent movie stings along the way. It is one of the most hilariously funny physical comedies I've ever seen, uh, run for a very tight 70 minutes. Um, Harold Lloyd, who's 
films I'd only seen in these small clips, bits and pieces, is just hilarious up on the big screen. His physical comedy had me in stitches many, many times over. So just to bring a bit of a joyous community cinema-going experience back into my life, um, a huge shout-out to, to Harold Lloyd, to the Swift people and to the, the musicians who played alongside the film. It, it was just such a funny night and had a great time doing it. So that's what I've been been watching lately. Yeah, I've got a big safety last poster in my lounge room. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. God, the film is so funny, mate. There's half a dozen moments where I was, I was like snort chuckling along with the film. It was, it was really very funny. It's a good one. Uh, I do wonder how many audiences would watch a silent film these days without like a big sort of cinema accompaniment with a band. Oh, of course. Of course. In fact, behind me when the film ended, this elderly lady says, you know, you can probably watch this on YouTube. And I sort of turned around and gave her a bit of a glare. She obviously didn't fully comprehend how important it was to see it in a full cinema with a with a, a live musical accompaniment as it was back in the day. But it just showed that, I don't know, maybe comedy more than anything can, especially this very physical comedy, and he was he was hilarious in the, in the part, um, still works a treat with a big audience. Yeah. I mean, she's probably right, though. Uh, Simon, a couple of things I've been watching is I finally started watching Ted Lasso properly. Uh, I've made my way through the first wow. season. It was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, maybe not quite okay. as amazing as everyone was talking about, but also I kind of think that people were crazy for it during the times of the pandemic where everyone was a bit freaked out. Yeah. And a couple of years later, maybe just kind of I'm looking at it at someone's terms a bit more, but it's pretty good. Uh, and then also Bo is Afraid, twice. which I've is a movie playing into it and I can't. Sorry. Oh. Yep. Sorry, I think we I think we've got a bit of lag, so we're going to fake our way through it. Okay. I've, and people keep telling yeah. me you've just, got to give it a go, straight go to season two. All okay. I've tried so hard to get into Ted Lasso. It's just one of those films that I cannot connect with. I know I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it's a, something I can't click with, but I know I'm, I'm certainly in the minority with that. Simon, like you, I gave it a couple of goes and never got past episode two or three. Uh, but I sat down and said, Dan, you're going to do it. And I did it. And I will say there's an episode probably around season episode five. And um, it's not one of these things where you have to wait for this episode for it to start getting good or anything. But it just kind of feels that uh, some of these shows, and it's kind of a bit of a hangout comedy where you kind of need to get to know the characters and the writers of the show kind of need to find where like the rhythms of it all are. But there's an episode where um, they kind of upend the show a little bit. They introduce a new character. Um, I mean, I can probably spoil it a little bit. Uh, there's this guy, Danny Rojas, that comes into it. And as soon as he comes into it, like the show becomes even more joyous. And it just kind of feels like that's where the show is really finding its feet at that point. So, okay. you know, maybe maybe give it another go. Don't write it off entirely just yet. But also, if you don't watch it, like, it's fine. Uh, and the other thing I've been watching, Simon, is Bo is Afraid. I went and watched this three-hour movie at the cinema. And the one thing I'll say about it is, because uh, I knew nothing about this movie going in. Not a peep. Uh, like, I knew that the movie had Joaquin Phoenix in it. That's as far as... Oh, sorry, and I knew it was directed by Ari Aster, who made Midsummer, and that's why I was there to see it. But yeah, I knew nothing beyond that. Uh, it is a strange, strange movie. Uh, it's playing at event cinemas, which I find really strange, because this is uh, essentially the less commercial version of Mother. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the Aronofsky thing from all those years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. So I didn't really think about the mother comparison until someone mentioned it to me in the last day or two. But the film I thought about immediately when I came out of it was that Orson Welles movie, The Trial, which is very much about bureaucracy. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, back in the day and a man sort yeah. of wandering through his mind doing that. Uh, mm. Yeah. I, look, this is kind of like Mrs. Davis. It's a movie you can't really describe or get people yeah. on board with. Just know if you're going to go and see it, see it in the cinema. If you try watching it at home, you are going to press stop and you're going to leave the room. You'll be sitting in the cinema watching it and you'll want to leave many, many times. But hit the end of that movie and boy, it will have felt like a rewarding experience, even though you won't quite be able to say why. All right. And I do apologize that your film reviewer hasn't been able to, this was in sort of the drive up here to coughs, change over things. So I just haven't been able to see it. It's closing the, the Swift Festival up here in a few days time. So um, I'll make sure I catch it then and maybe weigh in next week. But I have read comments from the director, Ariasta, whose words were, I can't believe A24 gave me money to make this, which is always <laughs> a good thing to, me, to hear your director say. Um, uh, yeah, I'm super keen to see it, but we'll, we'll check it out in the weeks ahead. I mean, look, Simon, not even that. I think that this movie is the most expensive A24 production to date. And it's amazing they gave him that yeah. much money to make this because this is not a commercial property by any means. Wow. All right. It's called uh, Bo is Afraid in cinemas now, apparently event cinemas, which is uh, bewildering. Okay. This day in history, Dan Barrett, I have got some challenging questions from you. April 29, 1953, an episode of USABC series Space Patrol is broadcast using what experimental advancement for television? So I saw this one on the run sheet, and it's been sticking with me since late last night when I saw it. My immediate like thought was just to say it's color TV, but I reckon it's, you're going a little bit sort of more askew, and maybe it's something more like stereo. It is this episode of Space Patrol was broadcast in 3D, the first 3D ah, okay. broadcast. On American television. April 29, 2009, after three series on Channel 10, which improv comedy series debuts on the Seven Network? I mean, how many improv comedy series have there been on Australian TV? Surely this is Thank God You're Here. It is Thank God You're Here. Well done. April 13, 1997, 42 million US TV viewers watch which celebrity public declare, publicly declare, I'm gay. I believe this was in an episode of television called The Puppy Episode. And, oh, sorry, the, sorry, I just thought the question is which celebrity and it's Ellen. Uh, sorry, Ellen DeGeneres. And I was just trying to work out which version of the show yeah. it was, but it was when the show was called Ellen. Ellen, okay, there you go, Ellen DeGeneres. Because, Simon, finally, if we're going to do, do some trivia, yeah. Simon, can you name all three iterations mm -hmm. of that TV program? <laughs> Uh, well, I know one's now Ellen, uh, the Ellen DeGeneres show and... No, the Ellen DeGeneres uh, show was the De sitcom she did after the... this program. Right. And there was Ellen's Gay, the I... spin-off, which didn't quite work. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Although, I mean, I'm sure lots of people were calling it that and the ratings, they certainly didn't stay at 42 million after that episode. I can tell you that much. No, they did not. What was the other one? Okay, so the Ellen's sitcom, it was definitely a middling performer, loads of middling at the beginning, and then became middling, and then eventually she came out, and then it did gangbusters for like three weeks, and then fell off a cliff. Uh, the first version was called These Friends of Mine, and then oh, they ended up jettisoning some of the cast from that. Yeah, so I'm trying to think who the original male lead was in it. Oh gosh, I can't think of that guy's name. 
Oh God, uh, me from 15 years ago with this guy was frequently on my mind. would be very disappointing me right now. doesn't matter. But basically, jettisoned most of the cast. I uh, kept the bits of the show that were working, and it became, uh, I want to say it was called The Ellen Show. And then eventually just became Ellen. Yeah. Okay. David Anthony Higgins, is that someone you're thinking of? No, he was through the entire run of the series, I'm pretty sure. Right, okay, all right. But he certainly wasn't there at the oh, beginning. Interesting. Right in. Yeah. Oh, sorry, one more question, Simon. What else have you got there? One more question very quickly. Which hard-edged drama? A reimagining of an iconic Aussie series debuts on Foxtel on May 1, 2013. I believe this would be Wentworth, which was the remake of Prisoner. Uh, you're on fire today. Well yeah. done, Well, Steve. they were kind of easy. Firing up. It's birth. It's birthday time. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. Okay, this week's on the birthday list, a very sort of complex group of characters that I think you're going to get, but maybe hard matching up the films with as well. April 29, 1958, Michelle Pfeiffer. I believe that would be Catwoman April. from the Tim Burton movie. April 29, 1970, Uma Thurman. Uh, Uma Thurman, that would be Poison Ivy from Batman and Robin. Wow. April 30, 1985, Gal Gadot. Uh, that would be Wonder Woman from the various Zack Snyder DC movies. You're setting yourself up for a fall. There's a couple of hard ones in here. May 2nd, 1972, Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson playing... Um, Oh, God. Well, obviously Black Adam. I'm trying to remember what the character's name was in it. It was like Seth Adam or something. I can't remember. doesn't matter. Terrible film. Go on. Black Adam's fine. Now, this is where you may stumble. May 3, 1975, the beautiful Christina Hendricks. Uh, Well, this one I didn't stumble on at all because I know that she voiced Lois Lane in one of the DC animated films at some point. You wow, All Star Superman, a DC animated feature which cut back in 2011 with Anthony LaPaglia, Ed Asner, and James Denton as Superman. So, well done, my friend. I knew we were getting into your territory. Can you name this one? May 4th, 1949, Sybil Danning. Okay, so I didn't know who Sybil Danning was, and I've been doing some learning up about Sybil right. Danning in the last couple of hours. Uh, but like I was doing this on the couch last night because I got all of them and including yeah. that Christina Hendricks one. So I don't want to make it seem as though I'd kind of fake my way through because it was pretty obvious what the connecting tissue was. Yes, with it all. It was. And I had to look her up yep. and I can't remember what it was now. I'm currently just scrolling through IMDb. That's right. This is what it was. Okay. In 1984, she was, sorry, 1989, she was in an episode of Superboy playing Pamela Dare yeah. slash Succubus. Beautifully done. Episode 1.25 of The Adventures of Superboy that aired on May 20, 1989. You're absolutely right. And the rest we can just finish off. May 4th, 1970, Will Arnett. Uh, obviously voiced Batman in the Lego Batman movie and the Lego movie. And the big man, and the big man himself, May 5, 1983, Henry Cavill. This is where I'm stumped. Sorry, Simon, I can't. <laughs> I've, I've failed it. Obviously uh, he played well Superman so and the Man of Steel. You got it. They've all been in the DC universe on screen, all bigs and small. So I know they invaded. All of them had their birthday um, during the week. So happy birthday to all of them and all you DC fans out there. You're welcome. You got to think like that's a lot of cake on that week of shooting on Justice League movies. Oh God, yeah. No, how could they keep in such good shape? Because they're all fattening up on 
icing and Fanta. <laughs> Fanta. <laughs> Simon, I think that's the end of the podcast. Uh, folks, thank yeah, you very much for listening. That. Yeah, uh, Thanks for listening. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. It's at alwaysbewatching.com. Now on Substack. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, I've got an Always Be Streaming newsletter for supporters of the Always Be Watching newsletter. And that recounts the big shows that launched that very week. And I should say, I'm not on Blue Sky yet, but hopefully I am by the time that this podcast goes out. Wonderful. At Simon R. Foster One on Twitter, read my words at screen-space.net. All things screen watching are at our socials, at Screen Watching Podcast on Facebook, at Screen underscore watching on Twitter. Over at the Screen Watching YouTube channel, you can see my interview with director Ellie Grupp, who's got the wonderful film Olga in cinemas next week. It's this stunning piece of Ukrainian cinema all to do with a gymnast, and uh, he gives a great interview, which is on our YouTube channel. Email us at screenwatchingpodcast at gmail to chitter-chat about all things movie and TV. Okay, folks, thank you very much for listening and watching. If you're on our YouTube channel or on Spotify, uh, we'll be back next week with more screen watching.